Welcome to What Has My Attention, and this is John Beetham. Today I'm giving the microphones to Jamie Martin and Heather Lynn Wagner, who will help destigmatize neurodiversity in the workplace. I really want to thank Jamie for bringing Heather on the show, and for that matter, all the other guests she's brought on for other episodes. So some of the topics we're going to cover today, or they're covering, is neurodiversity or neurodivergent individuals the need for more support in the workplace for those with learning differences, neurodiversity and what it looks like, neurodiversity, pioneer Judy Singer, neurodiversity as a concept, and the neurodiversity movement. Nothing about us without us. Other learning differences. ADHD coaching. The impact on executive function learning differences, markers, impulse control, neurodiversity in the workplace, ableism, neurodivergent communication styles, disclose and self-disclose, invisible disabilities, and social disability, the inclusion model, unconscious bias, Brene Brown, an episode titled What's Happening at Work, Part 1 and 2, with Adam Grant and Simon Sinek. What does collaboration truly look like? There may be a clue here if you look up The High Achieving Collaborating with Lisa, Audrey, and Patty, and there's a link in the show notes. The Unspoken Social Curriculum, Body Doubling, and more. So without waiting any longer, I now give you Jamie and Heather. Hey, we're live with Jamie Martin and Heather Lynn Wagner, and my name is John Beetham with What Has My Attention. And the way this kind of rolls for this kind of an episode is that Jamie's been on several different episodes. You can go to whathasmyattention.com or your podcast app and do a search for Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, and uh, you'll be able to uh, see what other kind of trouble she's been up to. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always, I know. So what I did with Jamie, I said, God, she, we were talking, it's just like there's something else you want to talk about, and I said, bring somebody on that you just would have a fun conversation with. So so um, I always let my guests, that would be you, choose the topic. It's not about me. It's about you. And then what I will do is bow out of the conversation. And it's really interesting, uh, Jamie, I don't, know, I don't think we've talked about this. But what I have observed is once I'm out of the picture, so to speak, I mean, you know, I am the man behind the curtain. But, uh, and I'm hearing everything, is that there's a place in the conversation with two women or three women where all of a sudden it shifts. And I, I'm kind of looking for that name of that vibration or that that contextual change, and I, I haven't been able to name it. But this is part of the reason I buy, uh, bow out, because even if I'm not saying a word, I think there's uh, some sort of influence there, and I don't want that to be happening. So anyway, um, thank you very much for being here. And uh, who wants to do the introduction in terms of the title and why you chose it and introducing yourself and very, very, very small, very, very small introductions in terms of your background. They can always go to the website and uh, that sort of thing. So you may take it away and I'll hang around for a little bit, but not long. Awesome. Thanks, John. So today we're actually going to talk about destigmatizing neurodivergency in the workplace. 
And I can never remember if I should say neurodivergent or neurodivergency. So that might be something we talk about today, Heather. But um, as a little introduction to me, I'm Jamie Martin. I'm a life and leadership coach, and I work and partner with women and people in general who are just ready to shake things up in their life. They're done settling for less than they deserve and are ready to go after the things that really matter the most for them. And in my my coaching journey, I have come across neurodivergency, neurodivergent. Neurodiversity or neurodivergent individuals. Individuals. Okay, thank you. Um, As being something that has actually gotten or has been opened up to me from some of my clients. And so I thought this was a great opportunity to, to talk more about this because quite frankly, without having met Heather, I, I think I would have been with blinders on still to this day and, and how prevalent it is in the workplace and yet how much there is no support for it. So that's a little bit about me. Heather, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So I I have so many different introductions based on the context. So I think I'll start for this conversation by saying I am a multiply divergent leader and executive leadership coach. Um, I have been diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD um, as a child and then really struggled as I grew in my leadership and then later on in life when I had a neurodivergent child became much more aware of my own um, autistic traits, sensory processing disorder traits, highly sensitive person traits, um, auditory processing disorder traits. So as I aged, I found I had a lot of neurodivergences, which, um, were obstacles and inhibited me in some ways because I was under supported and didn't understand them, but also are my superpowers in a lot of ways and allow me actually to be an amazing coach, um, if I do say so myself. <laughs> uh, but I, I am, I really focus a lot on trauma informed leadership and also supporting neurodivergent leaders. There is overlap in those conversations and. We could maybe get into that today. It might be a bigger conversation um, about the neurology of both the trauma brain and the neurodivergent brain. Um, but I work with organizations. I bring a trauma-informed approach. I work with leaders who have maybe tried a bunch of different modalities, but they've gotten stuck in particular areas and can't seem to move through for some reason. Um, I've spent about 20 years doing this work, uh, started from my neuro divergent background and how I got into leadership at all, which is a great story I can tell. Um, But yeah, I'm here to have a really important conversation as I am raising a neurodivergent child. And I want to see a world where when he gets to the age where he is in organizations or being a leader that um, he's fully embraced and supported for who he is. So when Jamie proposed this conversation, I was definitely up for it. Heather, one thing that I, I think would be helpful, especially for people that come to this conversation like I did to you, uh, what, about a year ago, and said, what what are we talking about? So can you maybe give that, that better definition around neurodiversity and, and what, what does it look like? Okay. 
So I, I have to start with giving props to the person who originally coined this term. Her name is Judy Singer. There's actually a huge conversation in the neurodiversity movement in space because she, as a researcher, an autistic researcher, um, brought forward this conversation about like, maybe there's nothing wrong with us autistic folk. Maybe we're just a variant in the different styles of neurology that humans have. Um, and then people really grabbed a hold of that concept and ran with it as a movement to um, stop pathologizing neurodivergences. And we can talk more about what qualifies as that. Um, but stop pathologizing them and start to actually embrace them as just a normal variation in the human genome. And she borrowed it from the like diversity conversation from biology, because if we look at our whole ecosystem, we thrive with diversity. And if we don't have diversity, it doesn't work. And so why would brains? And I always like to say to people, we have different shaped arms and eyes and legs and hair. Why would we think our brains aren't shaped or wired or, you know, grow differently? So that being said, I got to give Judy Singer props. And unfortunately, she gets no economic benefit from having coined this thing that's become a major movement and there's a whole conversation. So if you're someone who believes in, you know, supporting the people who generate these ideas, she there's ways to go find her online and contribute to her work. Um, so that's neurodiversity as a concept. The neurodiversity movement was really um, spearheaded by autistic individuals um, who wanted to reclaim autism. And this is my interpretation of it. So if you Google it online, you'll find different variations of it. But really to say, listen, everyone who studied neurodiversity or autism up to this point really has come from neurotypical or people who have norm, what you would toy normal, which is an ableist concept, but normal brains, um, that anything that diverges from that there's something wrong with them and that they're broken. And we had all neurotypical doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists assessing and evaluating neurodivergent individuals. So the autistic community stepped forward and they came up with this slogan, nothing about us without us. Like don't devise research, don't devise um solutions. And it's still a huge conversation because this is a very emergent space. Um, there's still huge conversations about it um, because autism especially is a very huge spectrum and there's a lot of variety of abilities on that spectrum. And so as that movement grew, and if you know anything about neurodivergent individuals, it's very rare that you have one divergent trait. So very often autistic people are also ADHD are also have sensory processing, like I shared myself, I accumulated a bunch of other things about how my brain works um, that are divergent from what is considered a typical way a brain works. And so um, that movement started to collect other people who identified with different neurodivergences. So not just the autistic community, but the entire divergent community in a whole. And so Typically, when you say neurodivergent, it can be someone who has different learning differences, 
um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, dyscalculia, uh, ADHD, and some of the even more expansive definitions, because again, there's no hard and fast rules here, also include different mental, um, what would be considered typically a mental health diagnosis, things like OCD, um, certain anxiety disorders, um, bipolar sometimes falls in there. And then also traumatic brain injury, which is a whole nother, you know, conversation. But I had a client actually I was working with for quite a while who came to me one day and was like, I think I might be autistic. And I think you knew that. And I was like, I I can't diagnose you. I don't know what the label is. ADHD, autistic. There was definitely a divergence in your style of thinking and processing. So he decided to go um, get checked out and turns out he had traumatic brain injury from having a chair hit him as a kid. Um, Something totally what he thought was benign, but uh, under an actual brain scan at Dr. Amon's clinic, he actually got to see his brain and he had traumatic brain injury. So it's a whole other conversation, but um, yeah, that's roughly what it is. And so there's different statistics out there. Some say like one in eight people has some sort of neurodivergence or divergence of thinking or learning. Um, so if you look at your organization and you do the math, the likelihood of you having neurodivergent people in your um, organization is very, very high. Right. So what I heard from all of, from this to, to kind of encapsulate it for everybody is that Really, what we were doing was labeling normal in one back bucket, and then anything outside of what was, you know, maybe seventy percent of the population had to be abnormal. Right. And so now, what we're doing is really taking that step back and saying, wait, questioning our assumption yeah. that there is a normal versus an abnormal, and is there just a different way of thinking? And with that, how do we move things forward so that that we're all successful. And it's interesting because I just read an article today that was talking, and for the life of me, I can't remember where it was, but talking about like back in the day, we thought that bloodletting was the end all be all in medical health. And what I'm hearing in this is somebody along the way had a question like, wait a second, this doesn't really work. We've just been accidentally curing people but that looking at the other side of the people who never got bloodletted and they still got, you know, recovered from the illness. And it's, it's almost a similar thing where it's, let's take that step back and, and look at the brain and the magic of it and look at how the different gifts can actually show up in the space. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because back in the day, <laughs> Anyone who showed up, maybe let's say, for example, they were a late talker. Let's say they had what would now be diagnosed as a language processing disorder or a language delay of any sort. Um, Maybe they thought differently. Uh, They would be institutionalized. They would be written off as there's something like, oh, there's like there's, you know, people who were nonverbal. This is a huge thing is there's a lot of people in this neurodivergent space who are nonverbal, especially apraxic people have struggled with expressive language. And we assume that because they don't have expressive language, that they don't have receptive language. And that's not true. They have an entire world inside of them that they can't express. And so what kind of trauma and what kind of um, 
you know, experiences are they having when they, they, they literally are stuck inside and they have no way to express themselves. And so, you know, it's still very, very controversial because there are parents, especially neurotypical parents who have children who are born and maybe have some of these issues and they just want to push to have, we got to get our child as neurotypical as we can in order for them to be successful and have a full life. And it's like changing that understanding to say, well, no, we just need to find the ways in which this individual expresses fully and what this individual's strengths are and how do we help them expand on those strengths and support their gaps. Um, And this is what I think the movement is now towards even in the leadership space or, you know, ADHD coaching, for example, ADHD coaching has been around for a long time. It's an interesting conversation because I don't want to say it's cool to have ADHD, but it's becoming a lot less shameful or more common. There's a lot of coaching out there and support for ADHD, but not so much for these other um, neurodivergences. So ADHD isn't as, it's, it's still pathologized, but not in the same way. And so there is a lot more support out there for the ADHD community. There are a lot of coaches. There's whole, like Chad, I think is the whole, like, I can't remember what it is, but it's the whole ADHD m- modality of coaching. But we don't necessarily have that for other types of neurodivergences. Right. So for those people who are ta- are listening and saying, hmm, could I have any traits? What are some traits to look out for, especially as an adult who who already feels like maybe there's something different about me and different from the n- normal, right? That's stereotypical. Yeah. I mean, that right there might be a tell as if you've always felt, always felt a little different. It's tricky um, because there's no like one profile. But what I will say is if you at all were ever diagnosed with a learning difference or if you growing up in school struggled and had to do maybe resource room or some support structures, people don't always can like connect the dots for themselves. So if you knew in childhood, maybe you thought you overcame because this is what we say. Oh, I learned how to read, so I must be fine. Or maybe you, you know, there's different things. But if you knew in childhood that you had some sort of a learning difference. Um, It's still impacting how you, it's part of who you are. It's your neurology. So it's still likely impacting you in certain ways. Um, If we look specifically at, and I don't know how to super explain this, but executive function is typically what's impacted with a lot of these different neurodivergences and also processing. So if you feel like you process the world a little bit differently, or maybe you see things in ways that you don't feel like everyone else sees them. That might be a marker. If you struggle with, like, maybe you're, maybe you feel like you're super brilliant in these key areas, but you really struggle with time management or organization, or like, if you just can't be on time to things, or, you know, that's a broad stroke thing. But question mark. Is there something else going on? I was going to say, because my parents are never on time to anything. So. Right. But see, this is the thing that's tricky because like I joke, for example, myself, like metacognition is an executive function. And let me just qualify what that is. We have different parts of our brain. 
the human brain, which is the, the newest part of our brain, it's that prefrontal cortex. That's where a lot of being human exists. Our language lives there. Our emotional regulation lives there. Our ability to plan and organize, focus lives there. Um, you know, our ability to plan and prioritize lives there. Our ability to see bigger picture and, you know, bigger picture thinking lives there. That's called metacognition. Um, time lives there, all that stuff. So for me, I have what's called time blindness, where like my brain just doesn't, I have no concept of time <laughs> at all. Um, and But my metacognition, my ability to see the big picture and see all how systems and things interact is hyper-developed. It's almost like my ability to do that had to compensate for other things in a way. Um, and so that's really, even when we talk about autistic individuals um, and how they're on a spectrum is like what you've heard autism spectrum, people in their mind think that that's like a, a line. And on one side is like normal and high, func high functioning, I'm air quoting here for people who can't see me. And then on the other end is what would be considered lower functioning or not as normal. And it's not like that at all. It's actually almost like a, a brain map of like, here's where I have really strong, amazing strengths and here where I have some gaps over here. So it's called a spiky profile. Um, and even using language like, um, um, what did I just say? I'm sorry, like high High, high functioning, uh, high functioning, and low functioning. Those are ableist terms, because I might be considered high functioning in my metacognition, but then I'm actually low functioning in my time. And so we 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 prefer to use language that's like high needs versus low needs. So I have a lot of support structures around time management because of my gaps. Um, I don't need as many structures around self-awareness because I'm really, really good at that part. So again, if you felt like you have really strong areas and it's it's broad because we all have very strong areas, we're all strengths and we all have strengths and gaps. But if you've felt like you've struggled in any particular area that you've noticed other people don't seem to struggle in, if you've ever had thoughts like what's wrong with me that I can't do that, um, if you feel like you're constantly trying to perform to expectations you can't ever seem to meet and you can't figure out what's wrong, I would maybe have you kind of look and see what might be going on. Yeah. And I, I, what I like about that piece is, is that I, I've heard a couple of times of that feeling like I've had to put a mask on mm, like my yeah. whole life. I've had to put a mask on and I'm just trying to perform to, to a certain expectation um, that isn't aligned with my strengths. Yeah. Masking is a huge thing in the neurodivergent community because the world projects neurotypical standards and expectations onto us and then also reinforces through our education system, through our medical system. The minute, even if you think about kids and, and like growing up, I have a second child right now. Um, we don't know ultimately what she's going to be, but her brother's neurodivergent, her mother's neurodivergent, her dad's questionably neurodivergent. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, will she be? I don't know. But if I was to hold my daughter, who's two, almost two, against my son's development, like my son's language came much later. My daughter's language is expressive language, I should distinguish, is exploding. Um, and my daughter's meeting all the markers that the American Pediatrics Association says she should be meeting, whereas my son didn't meet a lot of those markers. And so immediately we get into, oh my gosh, my kids aren't meeting the markers and what's going on. And you're immediately shamed as a parent, as a kid right out there, you're not meeting the markers. Well, what markers? Everyone develops in their own way across the board. And what we've now come to understand is executive function isn't even fully developed till you're 25. Like impulse control isn't even fully developed until 25. No wonder our college kids are out there like, you know, partying. Well, and I, I was going to say too, I, I, I mean, do, have we done it gender, gender, genderized, right? Because I, I think of like, there's certain lovely men in my life who my my dad being one of them impulse control is not right a good a strong one of his executive function oh, for him no 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 yeah. you know i i we had to steal the ladder from him so that you know he's 83 right now he's trying to get we on just, the ladder oh, he's yeah. trying to get on the wood ladder right so my husband and i borrowed it in order to take it away from him so he wouldn't go on it you know yeah well, and that's the thing is, as you age, your executive function declines, too. So like there is that your executive function capacities decline, too. Um, so. So, yeah. So going I'm sorry, I think I lost track of where we were on going with that. But I think, um, yeah. What was the last question you asked me? I forgot. <laughs> I don't remember, but I, I would be curious, kind of changing the conversation a little bit into yeah. the workplace. Right. Oh, so masking. That's what we were talking about. Oh, yeah. About. We were talking about masking. And so like. How, you know, we, we understand ableism. I mean, we think about it from all perspectives, right? Not just, you know, from ableism, but also racism, sexism, all of that's in, in this conversation. But it seems like ableism is not really fully into the conversation yet. So mm -hmm. what, what do you think that impact really has on both the employees and the employers? So... I just want to, for the listeners, because ableism is a very new concept to a lot of people. And so just to de define it, right? Um, if you think about racism or sexism or any of the isms, it's about, um, you know, projecting an oppressive model or understanding really onto people. And ableism is just this idea that you should be able to do these things. And if you can't, there is something inherently wrong with you or you are bad. And, you know, it's um, what happens is the impact in organizations really is leaders are setting unrealistic expectations for their neurodivergent leaders. They're setting them in a way that they don't even realize is setting them up to fail. Our neurodivergent leaders or individuals um, are then hyper performing and masking to pretend like they can get there. And ultimately there's this huge gap between what they actually not are capable of from a, a values or a um, competency standpoint, but from a neurological and or skill set. And there's this like shame that just because 
Jamie can plan and prioritize her day and show up to meetings on time. And like her time management is impeccable, but Heather is always that person that's three or four minutes late. And even though Heather's work is just as valuable as Jamie's and their output and their production is both on par, fantastic, or maybe Heather's is even a little bit better than Jamie's at the end of the day because Heather can't be on time or because Heather meets deadlines or because Heather always has to be talked to about her time management skills. She's viewed as a problem employee or there's something wrong with her because you should be able to just show up on time, right? And when you don't, you're disrespecting other people's time and you're disrespecting others. So there's so much wrapped into what you should be able to do because it's right and society says that's the way things are done. And so your neurodivergent folks end up hypermasking, overperforming, living in a constant state of stress, and then they burn themselves out. Um, and also we see, and I know Jamie, you and I had conversations about this, where neurodivergent folks also have a different way of communicating and talking. So sometimes like autistic individuals can be perceived as too direct or too cold, or asking too many questions, or rude, or all of these judgments based on social standards and social what's right. Um, ADHD folks might talk too much, they might over talk, they might overshare, they might, um, you know, when they can often be considered one uppers, because as soon as you share an experience, an ADHD will be like, oh my god, that happened to me. And the people are like, well, why can't you just hear my story? Why do you always have to interject? And this is actually how neurodivergent people communicate. It's not, I'm telling you what happened to me because I want to hijack the conversation and center myself. It's, this is how I show you I can relate and connect with you because I also experience it. So it's just a different communication style, which is really at the root of what neurodivergence is. We just see the world and communicate our experience of the world in a very different way that society pathologizes and says there's something wrong with us. So you have hyper-performing, burned out neurodivergent leaders who aren't asking for support, who don't even realize that they're allowed support and protections under the Disability Act. You do have rights at work. You can advocate for your needs if you don't know that. Um, and we have leaders that have no idea how to support them and are just operating from outdated models of what makes a good employee. Well, and it's interesting to me because I, you know, some of the uh, there's so much I want to talk about on this this thread <laughs> because some of some of it is is that you know pairing up the leaders not knowing what to do, but also right. without sharing your communication style on some level, you know, I, I've talked about co-creating, you know, be, once you get this awareness of being like, okay, let's co-create the relationship again, because yeah. now you're starting to understand, you know, if, if you're uh, neurodivergent, you're starting to understand like, oh, so this is how I'm, I'm thinking, or this is how I communicate. And these are why I, this is the desire and need I have to fulfill by asking so many questions or right. talking so much. So being able to kind of bring that forward while scary can yeah. also, I think on the flip side, allow leaders to go, oh, wait a second. There's, like you said earlier, one in eight people who have something going on, have something going on. Yeah. And how, yeah. you know, because I just think about this is the first time this last year is the first time I have experienced anybody 
in this in this capacity, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, but I had no idea. And yeah. so it would be interesting to see how do we start to move the awareness on both sides yeah. forward so that. Well, I think it first starts with we have to move like so there's two aspects, right? Because disclosure is a hot topic. I can't get the support and we can't educate and we can't create more inclusive environments if we don't disclose and self-disclose. And there's still a lot of bias and stigma, which is the whole topic around um, what it means to show up with these these types of what are sometimes called invisible disabilities there are a lot of neurodivergent people who won't even like allow themselves to consider themselves disabled because our society looks at, and the stigma is having a disability means that there's something wrong with you, that you're broken. This is just society. And that's that medical model pathology model of you're broken. We need to fix you. So really, if we move from the medical model of disability into the social model of disability, which says there's actually nothing wrong with you, society has created structures and beliefs and biases which inhibit your ability to fully actualize, and society is inherently broken, it's not you. So it's a, you're, you're socially disabled. And what's great about that is we can actually fix society. We can actually fix policy. We can make things more equitable and accessible um, for all kinds of learners. And so that's why when I work with organizations and leaders, I like to even like I like to educate on neurodiversity and normalize it. And I think this is what we have to do is have more and more conversations that normalize. Of course, that people are different. But I, I like to also say, let's not just address the neurodivergent population. Let's address everyone because everyone has strengths and gaps. If you're creating leadership programs or accountability programs or project management structures or designing your offices, or if you're doing everything where you're addressing everyone's needs simultaneously and you're creating it equitably, everybody talks about inclusion. I like to talk about equity. If you're doing it for everyone, everyone benefits. So sure, we can focus on what do our neurodivergent folk need because they do need different things. We need, do need different spaces designed. We do need more flexible work environments. Like this whole remote work thing was really great for a lot of my neurodivergent friends. We do need different kinds of coaching and support structures. And we also, um, we also need to just know that we're also a member of our entire team and Susie has just as many needs as I have. Are we meeting everybody's needs and can we make it more inclusive from our thinking? Does that make sense? It, oh, it totally does. And in fact, I got chills from when you were talking about the society perspective and the society construct is broken. You yeah. know, and, and the first thing that popped in my head when we were talking about it is is, you know, wheelchair bound individuals. Right. Yeah. They, they, their legs might not function well, but the rest of them is perfectly capable. And right. how do we create space for them to navigate life in, in a way that has them showing up and being right. able to participate? And that's kind of what I, I hear in this is how do we start to create space so that regardless of, of where we are and, and how our brain processes or how we communicate that we are starting to actually 
bridge the gap yeah as leaders as individuals as society well and this is where i get a little bit on a soapbox around dei and deib is like the way it works right now from an inclusion model is here are all the typical white male heteronormative cisgendered people and we're going to save these two or three seats over here for the others or we're going to include them. And it's created inside. Of, who was the, it was Einstein or someone was like, you can't create the solution from the same thinking that created the problem. Hmm. So I, my argument for a lot of this is like a lot of inclusivity work and a lot of diversity stuff is just about like, there's still an us and there's still a them. And it's tricky because in order for these programs to work, you have to at first acknowledge that they're is this experience, but then the solutions and the opportunities have to be created from a we context, which means we then have to embrace everyone. And so, yeah, I think the more, because if you think about the person in the handy, in the wheelchair, who's in that type of a disability, a physical disability, we have a ramp over in the corner. We have a couple parking spaces for them, but they're still not inherently valued for what they bring. And I think this is also a key in the just destigmatizing neurodiversity is <laughs> neurodivergent people by default are innovators, system thinkers, system breakers, some are even system upholders, but every different, but very much we are innovative. You hear the term out of the box thinking, I, I kind of hate that term at this point, but if you think about if you're going to solve the problems of the future, you need to have that type of innovative neurodivergent, that's the whole point, thinking mindset. And so when we start to value, whether it's our physically disabled friends or our, neuro, our neuro, neurologically disabled or differently wired friends, everyone brings value to the table. And when you can start from there, that's how we destigmatize all of diversities, divergences, disabilities, and et cetera. Yeah. And I love that you brought in the innovation side of things because it's it's funny to me that we've actually gotten to the place where <laughs> innovation is normalized in yeah. and of itself. It's like, this is the process. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how it's supposed to work. And yet what you just said is exactly what creates innovation is by looking at a problem and saying, how do we look at it differently? Mm -hmm. What do we need to do different, regardless of, of you know how we're thinking or processing? It's just re-looking at things from a different angle and shifting that paradigm a little bit. Yeah, one hundred percent. The the thing that I, I'd be curious about is for for leaders that are hearing this, you know, what would you say is the first thing that they they can do to start to question? The, the lens that they currently carry around this? Um, I mean, first and foremost, I think any leader, whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, to be honest with you, we first have to acknowledge unconscious bias. We have to acknowledge that our society has programmed us with beliefs. And this is like, whether you're doing anti-racism work or you're doing gender work or whatever you're doing, like if you can't first acknowledge neurobiology and how it works and that society has embedded certain beliefs and biases into your brain, 
like we can't even go anywhere from there. So first and foremost is the acknowledgement that that exists. And then the next step is to get super clear and responsible for where your own internalized ableism or where your own biases around um, any kind of difference, where that comes from. So you got to check yourself there. Um, I think the second thing is to really come from a strengths-based model with every one of your employees, whether they um, are neurodivergent or not, whether they disclose or not, just assume that everyone has strength. Like let's normalize gaps. I'm working with a a company right now that um, they brought me, I do a lot of remedial coaching where I'm brought in to work with what's considered like a problem child, but is who's also still valued in the company. And um, that's why I think my trauma, (laughs) my trauma work has definitely informed by a lot of that. But um, I have this one particular employer who's like, this person's great here, 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 and there, but I need you to fix all these other things with them. And so I'm sure you're familiar with that, Jamie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've definitely had that experience where you're like, um, doesn't kind of work that way. Yeah. But, you know, I go in and I do a whole, I do, a, I work with a bunch of assessments and profile things, and I, it's strengths based ones, everything's strengths based. Um, and then I get their profile, and like, it's very apparent to me that they're likely neurodivergent, shocker. Um, and planning and prioritizing is a huge issue for them, but they're a rock star salesperson. Relationship is their superpower, strategic thinking. They can put together any solution, they can problem solve for any client, but like amazing over here. But the complaint is they can't deliver metrics on time, they their email management and re- response is not on time, like just all these issues. So I have to like coach the CEO of the company to say like, look, every one of your employees is bringing some amazing strengths to the table and some have gaps and let's normalize that. And so let's look and see, first of all, do we have people in the right role or are we putting them in a lane that is not actually conducive to their strengths and gaps? Um, And then on top of it, are we expecting them to excel in a place where we aren't fully supporting them around their gaps? So that's the work I'm actually doing with this particular client right now is shoring up their support systems around email management and time management and stuff like that. And there's lots of tools out there to support. We're not going to fix it. We're not going to make this person amazingly great at planning and prioritizing, nor do I want to, because the energy spent trying to fix a gap is less energy spent being in your superpower and in your lane, your lane of strength. So I think it's really normalizing that. And then from there, yes, you know, if they do disclose, find out what their unique needs are. But that's the thing, neurodivergent or not, every single person has a unique set of needs a unique set of strengths. And if you approach every single person from that angle, I think you'll find success. And that's what I love. I love the idea of looking at every individual and saying, where are your strengths? Where are your superpowers? And identifying to those and leaning into those, right? Really leaning into and then taking that step back and saying, okay, so how do I support the rest of it for them, right? Because yeah, you're right. Certain people are brilliant at the relationship side. They're great at that conversation. They're great at navigating that. And then when it comes down to the, the the more like tactical, they're just like, I can't do it. I'm bored. It drives me crazy. And it doesn't right. matter if you're on 
Do you have a diagnosis or not? Or not. Or not. Or not. It doesn't or not matter. matter. You know, because so. the part of it is, is that our super strengths also come from not what we get excited about. Yeah. Purpose and passion. Yeah. Where's the passion that we're like, oh, this is awesome. I want to go do this thing. And if we start to actually look at the gaps across our whole organization, we'll find that we can actually start to support people in such a better way and move the yeah. company forward. You know, I, I think back to one of my bosses said, I, she actually intentionally looked at her strengths and hired people around her to fill the gaps. That is what I was just going to bring up. So there's two things I want to point to. I, I, I'm very, I love to refer people to things. I just listened to the latest Dare to Lead podcast with Brene Brown. She actually brought Simon Sinek and Adam Grant on, and they just started riffing on what's going on in the world right now. And I just am like, everyone needs to listen to it. Who's in leadership? Um, but one of the things they were talking about is this outdated model of individual performance. Like we reward individual performance, but we don't, we haven't created systems that reward team and collaborative performance. We expect you to be good at collaborating, but we don't reward it or we don't build systems that actually empower it. But what if we actually did? What if we said, Jamie is amazing at relationships and closing sales and Heather is great at follow-up and all the fine details of actually implementation and they became a team and they actually built off each other's strengths and gaps. And then they were rewarded as a team. Like what would be possible from looking at things from that more systemic way? And that's when I work with uh, teams and, and create hiring strategies for people because I do a lot of HR consulting. I'm like, okay, let's look and see, first of all, what are all the strengths in the team? And oftentimes what you see is they're very lopsided because they hire for who they like and who they feel comfortable with, which is a lot of, you know, they, more of them. So we figure out what the gaps are, but then we also look and say, well, what are your goals? What are your KPIs? What strengths do we need to hire for that are missing from the whole paradigm? And let's build from that. And what happens when you get into a strengths-based model of coaching or development is people feel more empowered. They're in their strengths. They're in their, like, they feel good about themselves. It's not like, oh, I'm so bad at this thing. And that means there's something wrong with me and I got to fix it. It's like, no, I just support myself in it. So it's just a far more empowering way. And it's also like the more emergent models I think we're seeing across the board when it comes to leadership development and even in the education system, it's, it, we're moving towards this more and more. Yeah, no, definitely. And it, it, it's interesting because I, I agree. There's certain things that, you know, I keep hearing the conversation around coming back into the office and the, the, the comment of we'll be more collaborative. And to me, that's just a huge sign that we haven't actually built the support to be collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. It means we, we don't know what that looks like. We don't, we haven't defined it. And so, you know, it's, it's really reflecting back on what does collaboration truly look like? And I love the pairing strength strengths together that really complement and support and raise. Well, and the last thing I'll put in on that is a lot of our autistic and neurodivergent friends succeed the most when they have um, like mentors or partners in an organization that help them, especially when it comes to identifying like certain social cues, let's say for our autistic friends who don't necessarily pick up on the, they call it the social curriculum, the unspoken social curriculum that many neurodivergent people just pick up automatically. Our autistic friends don't pick up. 
So when you're mentored with someone who can help you and you have that team relationship with the ADHD person who has someone helping them with planning and prioritizing an organization, there's, there's this phenomenon called body doubling with ADHDers where, and I swear to God, I don't know if you tap into other people's brains or what it is, but an ADHDer just needs another person's body. I don't even need you to do it for me. I just need the body next to me. And magically, my brain works on a whole nother level. It's called body doubling. And my husband does it for me all the time. I'm like, just stand next to me so I can finish this. It's like, okay. That's awesome. I actually just heard about that recently yeah. and have been so fascinated by, by just like you said. It's a phenomenon. Physical like, presence. Yeah. It's magic. That's awesome. It's so well, that I, I, I'm going to cut in here because yeah. honestly, you're going to have to continue the conversation. You know, I, it's only because I do have something coming up. Yeah. And, but I did, you know, I, oh my gosh, you know, it's like collaboration, really, really important stuff. And, and, uh, you know, but the thing I was thinking when you were just talking about uh, doubling was I gave a, I did a speaking thing at the Carlsbad Chamber months ago. And it did, I did not, it did not go over well, but when I'm thinking about it as what you just said, if there was somebody standing right next to me, it would have been a completely different experience. Yeah. I just facilitated a leadership summit that in my younger, more ambitious days, I probably would have tried to run solo. It was 35 people. It was a week long initiative, but I brought in someone who is just uh, someone I really respect and trust and we co-facilitated. And at the end, we looked at each other. We were like, that was easy. Like that was effortless and fun. And it's like, yeah, yep, absolutely. So there's yep. something about that. Well, listen, I, you know, I, I do want you to both think about actually continuing the conversation. Love well, especially to. the trauma. If you would I like to get onto the trauma side of it. Oh, the trauma. Yeah. Awesome. And, if, and if you, yeah. And if you want to bring somebody else on as well, that that's fine. Yeah. Just put together what you think would be most useful for people. And that'd be awesome. Yeah. And then um, let's find out how to get in touch with you each. And Heather, I know you have a uh, podcast as well. I looked it up while I was multitasking. Ah, yeah. But but uh, yeah, so how do people get in touch with you? Oh, God, there's so many ways. So I have so many projects being the ADHD serial entrepreneur that I am true to form. Um, if you want to learn more about some neurodiversity stuff, I do have a podcast neurodivergent leader. It's on, you know, all the podcast places, Apple, Spotify. Um, we have season one down and I'm in production for season two. Um, if you are interested in trauma informed leadership, you can go to trauma dash informed leadership.com learn a little bit more there. I do run um, a, a cohort every couple, every quarter that trains leaders and coaches on how to be more trauma-informed and bring that into their work. And then you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search uh, Heather Lynn Wagner and you will find me there. Um, and I am starting to author a book. So if you follow me on in, uh, LinkedIn, you'll learn more about that as well. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm following you now. Great. Jamie. And you can find me at Shocker, jamiemartincoaching.com. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn under Jamie Martin and then parentheses Karcheski. Just type in K-A-R and you, Ooh, you will likely Karcheski. find me. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank for you. Us. Thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. So until next time for everybody else, you can, of course, catch this podcast anywhere you get your audio, period, because we're everywhere. Or you can go to whathasmyattention.com 
and cruise around. There is a section there called Women in Strong Leadership. It's category. And uh, you will find all the conversations about and with Women in Strong Leadership. So until next time, we will see you again. Thank you.